All right. All Hello, right. everybody. This is Alejandro Rojas with the Rojas Report. Do you happen to have any headphones, Brian? Or maybe I'll... Do I? Well, I do, but they're actually kind of not working, which is why they're not plugged Okay. In. That's all right, because there's um, just a bit of... Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you fine. I can hear me fine. I can put it in a little earbud. Would it, uh, yeah, that would be great. But that, would that, that help? That would be great. Okay. Yeah, that would help. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to mute the mic, but... Uh, just for a sec while I do this. So I'll explain to you what we're doing here. This is uh, Brian Bender of Politico, a senior correspondent, also the former uh, editor of the space and um, defense areas for Politico. And he's been the UFO topic uh, since December 2017. In fact, I don't know who came out first. We'll see uh, what he thinks. Uh, either here's the New York Times the whole Pentagon UFO project. So... Um, we're going to talk to him about, let's see. Hello. Hey there. How's it going? Ah, can you hear me? I'm on frozen. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Hello. Uh -oh. Hello, hello. Can you all hear me? Now you look frozen. I'm good. Yeah, they can hear me. Uh-oh, that's what we get for trying to mess with stuff. They can hear you, too. I can hear you. So we can all hear Brian. Hello? can't hear me. So let's see. While he gets this reconfigured here. So, of course, the news is that the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, in their appropriations bill uh, that's asking for information about UAP, uh, UFOs. And uh, Brian essentially broke the mainstream media story on that. Ask him a second how he caught wind of this. I don't know if you can, this can you wave if you hear me. I can hear you. If Brian and I seem a bit familiar, it's because we are. Fortunately, uh, we were able to connect uh, a couple of years ago uh, to talk about UFO stuff. And uh, we've been kind of uh, meeting and talking ever since. Oh, he's calling. So this will be fun. Hey. Hey. Hey, I don't know. You're I just see you. You're frozen and I don't hear anything. Uh try to join again because we could hear you. You you were just fine and everybody could hear me too. Aha. Let's see. Now we can Here you go. Can you hear me? Here we go. All right. Now we can. Thanks for your patience, everybody. Uh, sorry. No problem. Okay. So let's get into it. That gave me some time to kind of catch people up a bit. Uh, they're already aware. But uh, so you were the first kind of pretty much in the mainstream media to break this story. How did you come to this information? Well, you know, actually, um, I had been hearing 
sort of some rumors that there was going to be some sort of reference to the UAP issue in the Senate Intelligence Bill. And that's something I've been hearing actually for a couple of months. Um, and so I've kind of been checking in from time to time. And then to be quite honest, I don't claim to have broken the story. I think it was um, uh, Dan Silva on Twitter. Dan Silva, posted right. First, the actual report from the committee. And so once I saw that, um, that they had actually published the committee's report, and this is a report on the bill. So it's not the actual bill itself, but all of these pieces of legislation usually have an accompanying report that kind of goes into more detail and explains some of the provisions and why the committee's voting for this or voting for that or not voting for something else. Um, and so once I was able to just make sure that was um, the real thing, we obviously posted a story. But um, this was something that I think was in the works really for a couple of years. Yeah, interesting. Steve McDaniels, he's the other guy who broke this on Twitter. He's actually, I think, in the chat here too. Um, so he has some questions. But that's kind of interesting that it came kind of from the UFO world then uh, to you. Even though you had uh, heard some rumors, why do you think that's purposeful? Do you think it was a bit uh, hidden away, like they didn't want attention to that particular part? No, I mean, I, I, my sense is just those guys are on top of things and um, just, you know, got a hold of it or got word of it before I did. Um, and, you know, a lot of times these things, these committee reports will get sent to the government printing office. And, you know, sometimes it takes a couple of weeks till it actually gets published and posted. Um, I think in this case, this, the committee actually approved the bill two or three weeks ago. So, it, mm -hmm. you know, it was just sort of the lag time until they actually printed, printed the report. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there's obviously a lot of people interested in this issue and I've been one who's come at it, as you know, uh, Alejandro, pretty late. In other words, I've covered the Pentagon, I've covered the military, but I haven't necessarily covered this issue all that long. And so, um, uh, you know, those, those guys who are obviously researchers who focus on this a lot more, it's not surprising that they would be on top of it. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, you say that you've kind of heard rumors for the last couple of years. Are, where did these rumors, are these like inside rumors? Are these rumors, you know, in Washington where you're hearing this sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, this was from sources on Capitol Hill and, um, and, and also, quite frankly, to the Stars Academy, the Chris Mellons of the world, the Lou um, Elizondos of the world who, you know, it's no secret have been advocating that the government do more, pay more attention, throw more resources at this issue. And so I think where the interest really began in Congress was with some of these briefings that members of Congress were getting um, on the sightings by the Navy pilots over recent years. And I think it's about a year ago that um, we reported that the Senate Intelligence Committee or several members of the committee had been briefed um, about some of those reports um, in a closed session. And that included Senator Mark Warner of Virginia, who's the vice chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, the leading Democrat. Um, I believe 
Senator Jean Shaheen. I had spoken to her about some of the briefings that she had received. And I'm pretty sure that Marco Rubio, who, who now chairs that committee, was also among those who got briefed. And, and I had heard that he was among those that was most interested in it, that, that it alarmed him. I think he comes at it more from a national security perspective. You know, what are these things, if they're violating military airspace, shouldn't we be a little more alarmed about them? And so from what I'm told, um, it was his staff, um, obviously with his direction, that really took the lead on putting this provision in the bill that would um, require this report, this public report. Interesting. Now, uh, I think, you know, some of the questions I've heard, and you'd probably get this, is that the president, of course, was asked by his son about UFOs recently, and he, he mentioned Roswell. And so some people are speculating that this is kind of a new campaign uh, gambit on the Republican side to get Trump, uh, you know, reelected, uh, which it may be true as far as Trump mentioning it. But uh, I think people are suspecting that maybe Marco Rubio is trying to kind of back him up on this and it's a whole campaign thing. But that doesn't seem to be the case in that, as you just said, uh, Marco Rubio seems to be actually concerned about the, um, you know, the threat issues. Threat issues. Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, I, I don't get a sense from my reporting that it's it's as coordinated or connected. I mean, obviously, the issue itself has, you know, I think you you would probably agree has broken through in a in in sort of in the mainstream media, in the public conversation over the last couple of years in a way that it hasn't, at least in a long time, and. Um, you know, I think that's driven more questions to the president, you know, who's been asked a couple times in interviews about this issue. He hasn't said much, quite frankly. I mean, there, you know, there, there's a lot of headlines when they ask Trump about it. But when you look at what he actually says, yeah. he doesn't usually say anything at all. Um, uh, and so, you know, I think there's just genuine interest and less of a stigma for the political leadership to talk about this and raise questions about this. And so I don't know that there's, you know, any coordinated plan here. I mean, I may be wrong, but I'm not sure there's, you know, the political uh, sort of class thinks of a UFO vote. Is there a UFO vote out there like that we could get if we talk about this more or reveal more or, you know, be more transparent? I mean, I know it's, it's of intense public interest, but, um, you know, I'd like to see a poll that would rank where UFOs sit or, you know, where this issue sits on, you know, the economy, education, foreign policy. Um, you know, I'm not sure that it's, it's up there, but maybe I'm wrong. I mean, may, maybe there is, um, maybe there is a, you know, a, a level of support you could get politically by, by talking about this more. Yeah, it's interesting because I had those same questions when John Podesta was kind of pushing for Hillary Clinton to address the UFO issue way back when. Um, if they had done some sort of analysis, because they do so much number crunching on those campaigns, if they had found some sort of, uh, you know, numbers that supported the idea to push this if issue as into uh, the campaign as far as openness. But who knows? Um 
So then when it comes to Rubio and them asking the questions, it seems as though they were very influenced by Chris Mellon, I would guess, by firsthand uh, discussions with him. And you can, I was wondering if you have some insight on that, but also because he wrote that op-ed in The Hill where he kind of suggested that the Senate Intelligence Committee do just this. Yeah, um, I mean, there's no doubt that Chris Mellon has had a huge role in this. Um, he's a creature of Washington. He worked on the Senate Intelligence Committee. As you know, he was the minority staff director a number of years ago. He obviously had his perch um, in the Pentagon. He's been writing op-eds. He's been doing interviews. You mentioned the Hill op-ed, which is probably, I bet it's maybe a year ago by now. Maybe it's not that long ago, but um you know, if you look at that Hill op-ed and you look at the language that's in the Senate intelligence bill, it's, it's you know, pretty similar. He's been calling for, at least as a first step, let's figure out who knows what and, you know, what data is being collected, not just in the military, but in intelligence agencies. And let's centralize this somewhere. Because I think, you know, the point he's always made is that um, there's no real uniform process, at least that exists today, that he knows of, that pulls the common picture together. What do we know? What, what reports are coming in from where? Um, who's collecting them? Are they, you know, being put into some single place? And I think the answer to that is, no, they're not. And so I think he's been pushing this as a first step. Let's pull it together somewhere, make these agencies talk to each other, share information, put it in one place so Congress can see it. I think what's most interesting about this language is making it public, or right. at least there being a public version of it, which um, I think is uh, not necessarily something that, that I expected. I mean, I, I, I certainly was not that surprised that they took this step, but the fact that they wanted it to be public. Um, mm -hmm. Now, that is deal. an interesting part, because in Mellon's article, he said uh, he suggested it would be fine if the, the report was classified at whatever level they felt it should be. Uh, however, this is asking for a public part. Do you have any suspicion or any ideas of why they included this, um, what Adam Kehoe has called, and he mentioned this in his article, and he just mentioned it in the chat, kind of stronger language? than melons. In other words, that they are calling for this public um, portion. You know, it's hard to know. I mean, unless, you know, we could sit here and talk to, um, I think his name is Brian Walsh, is the staff person for Rubio, who I'm told has sort of taken the lead on this. I mean, without talking to him and knowing exactly what their thinking is, you could look at it two ways. You could look at it as, oh, this is stronger. It's forcing it, you know, a public report where, you know, you can't just put it in some secret document and bury it. But you could also look at it the other way where it's weaker in some ways, because if you're an overseer in Congress, you can see everything, presumably if the agencies are willing to tell you, and share with you what they know. But a public report, what I worry about is that it becomes a three-page nothing burger that, you know, is not much more than we already know. Um, I think it's going to be difficult to do it that way because of the way the language is written. It's very specific. 
about what you need to look at and the questions you need to answer. But um, I've been around long enough to know some of these public reports end up being answering the mail by writing something, but the something doesn't really give you a whole lot. So I think, it, it, it you know, whether this is stronger or weaker, I think is to be determined, uh, number one, whether this thing gets adopted by the full Senate, because it's just in the committee's bill right now. I think it'll be very difficult for the Senate to strip it out because it's, uh, you know, when it goes to the floor, because it's, um, uh, you know, it's very public now. We know this is in there, which is not always the case. Uh, in fact, it's rarely the case with the intelligence bill that we know is in there. Um, the public version of it is usually, you know, not very exciting. So if they mm -hmm. pull it out, people will wonder, well, why are they pulling it out? They're going to have to explain that. Um, and I think, quite frankly, the, you know, it's not that, con I mean, the, the issue is controversial, but the process is not that controversial. All they're asking for is a report. They're not mm -hmm. allocating money to go research UFOs. They're, you know, they're, 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 they're doing the bare, the bare minimum. But in this case, the bare minimum happens to be a big step because of right. the, the issue. So here are some other ideas on the public side that I was thinking of, and I'd like to hear your thoughts. Um, could it be possible that, A, they, they might be gauging um, the, uh, I guess, all of these agencies and how much they're willing to share publicly, or and or B, they're also gauging the uh, their constituents' temperature on all of this to make sure they're kind of hedging their bets uh, as far as, you know, politically? Yeah, I think it's, um, it, there's no doubt it's a test of the agencies uh, on a couple fronts. I mean, one, are they just simply willing to share information, even with the committee, let alone the public? Um, and so uh, I think on that score, you know, it, it'll be hard to know exactly what goes on behind the scenes, but um, I can imagine there will be pushback. I mean, there will be agencies that don't want to share information. Um, you know, the CIA, the Pentagon, um, variety of other agencies, they're notorious for sort of, you know, sitting on their own turf and not wanting to share things. And um, so that'll be a test, just how much are they willing to, to cough up. Um, I think the other, you know, I, I think the other test they're doing in this process is in, and, and this gets back to what I said earlier about Chris Mellon's um, sort of campaign here to centralize what we know is just simply answering that question. What do we know? I mean, what do these agencies actually have readily available, um, you know, in terms of recent intelligence data that has to do with this issue? And, and I don't think we really know the answer to that. I mean, um, I know there's sort of deep suspicion and good reason to be suspicious that the government does know a lot more than they're telling us, that there's files somewhere, there's radar images, there's videos, there's testimony. Um, and I'm not saying I, I doubt that. I, I, I just, I, we really don't know because this, this world is so secretive. Um, and, you know, that, that could end up being a real problem here because, I envision that it's quite possible some of these agencies, because of the stigma of the issue, 
because nobody wants to be the UFO guy, that at least in recent years, they haven't collected much. doesn't mean that there haven't been reports. It doesn't mean there haven't been sightings or unexplained phenomenon that, you know, people scratch their heads about. But I don't know that we have any real confidence that there's been a reporting process for it to actually retain that stuff in some place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it may end up being very haphazard, which, of course, will immediately lead a lot of people to be, well, they're hiding things. They're covering up. They're not telling us what they know. And I think all can be true. In other words, they can be resistant. The agencies can be resistant in coughing up what they do have. But I also think there's a possibility that at least in recent years, you know, the last 10 or 20 years, they might not have much data at all because they simply didn't keep it. Or, you know, nobody was tasked with being the UFO person. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I'm naive. I mean, maybe every one of these mm-hmm. agencies has a UFO person and they're sitting on piles of stuff that they don't want to share. But, um, you know, this, this, is, this is at least a way that we could start pushing that issue and seeing what's really there or what isn't there. Right. And if it isn't there, why isn't it there? I mean, if right. there are reports... And that's the second step here is maybe, you know, and, and the bill actually touches on this, is tell us what is the process for centralizing this stuff? Who's in charge? They want to know that too as part of this report, not just what do you have, but how do you gather it? Who gathers it? Where does it go? Do you need more resources? I think there's a question in there that asks, you know, do you need more resources or, or research dollars to, to get at this issue? So. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody, Adam raised a good point here, but, and I guess what I'm going to get at is similar uh, in that it does seem like to your point, you know, not all these agencies are on the same page with all of this. For instance, the Navy has said essentially they're, they've recently beefed up their, uh, reporting process regarding UAPs and story that you broke actually in Politico, uh, just recently, I think as recent as yesterday or the day before, John Greenwald got a response uh, from or a FOIA that had indicated that the Air Force had said, we don't have a, you know, a particular UAP reporting process, but it is included in our op rep reporting, which is kind of how you flag the importance of different uh, intelligence reports that you're sending up the, the wire. Uh, so there's a big difference there and kind of like what you're saying is that, you know, it seems like the Navy might have been a little more coordinated about it, whereas the Air Force wasn't, kind of surprisingly. Um, so we may see vast differences throughout these agencies because they are asking for all of these agencies to report, and they even kind of called out the FBI, which is interesting. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, too, the the reference to the FBI. I mean, I assume there they're... they're um, uh, you know, they're they're trying to be comprehensive. In other words, if there are reports, you know, additional reports that we don't know of, of UAPs, and again, and I use the word, the term UAPs very broadly. I mean, you know, as the military does, it could be uh, something that looks like a flying saucer, or it could be a drone that doesn't have permission to be flying over our Navy base. Um, but in a case like that, if there was a sighting of some unauthorized intrusion, um, because it's domestic U.S. territory, uh, or in, in, the, in the case of domestic military base, you would call in the FBI 
potentially, to come in and figure out who's screwing around with their drone. Um, and so I think that's why they want, that's one of the reasons why they want the FBI to be part of this too. Um, how many times have they been called in for you know investigating these things? Um, I also think, I'm just looking at um, some of the questions here, I think the reason why the committee keys in on the Navy's task force um, is that, you know, that's been the organization that has been briefing the committee about the Navy pilot sightings. It's, you know, it's out in the public. I mean, we know the Navy's been talking about the new guidelines that they've issued for people to report these sightings. Clearly, you know, they have a, at least some formal operation that's looking into this. I, I'm, uh, I'm one who doesn't believe it's very formal. I think it's, it's, you know, you can put three people in a room in the Pentagon and call it a task force and have no budget and no nothing but a bunch of paper shuffling. And, and I, I have a feeling that this task force is more that. I don't think the Navy has opened up the budget and said, go, you know, go task force and find the answers. Um, uh, so, you know, um, the mention of the Navy task force, I think is just simply because that's a real thing. They know it exists. They've interacted with that task force or the few people that are, that are on it. And, um, you know, uh, and even the air force, you know, my sense is the air force has been deferring to the Navy on this. You guys already have your task force. You know, if we can help, let us know. But, you know, I don't get the sense of the Air Force. And, you know, as a lot of people have pointed out, and a lot of people have wondered, why is the Air Force, which in some ways has a hell of a lot more responsibility for protecting the airspace of the United States than the Navy does, why are they not more involved in this or more public about it? And, um, you know, there's this sort of narrative out there a little bit that the Air Force doesn't want to touch this because acknowledging that there are unidentified aircraft semi-regularly interfering in American airspace, and there's virtually nothing we can do about it, basically is the Air Force acknowledging that they have failed on the primary mission they've been given, which is to defend the airspace of the United States. And so they kind of don't want to go there bureaucratically because it opens up a can of worms that, you know, they don't know how to close. Um, but, you know, but again, this report is going to presumably this report that the committee is asking for is going to change that because all of these agencies are going to have to contribute to this thing somehow. Um, mm -hmm. uh, unless they try to kill it, which is not inconceivable that uh, these agencies are not going to want this. And um, but it would be very hard if it's in the bill for the president to veto, given mm -hmm. what he said, so it's kind of interesting, uh, you know, it makes me kind of chuckle that now we have this, we have the Space Force, and now we have the Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force, which seems to be uh, a sort of an extension from ATIP, and uh, I would like to hear your thoughts on that. I think Chris Mellon, or not Chris Mellon, but others have said, you know, it just, and Luis Elizondo has even said that, it's become this multi-agency kind of task force. Uh, you know, some researchers, Roger Gassel, I think, got a response from the DOD that said, yes, it is a multi-agency task force now, um, all confirming that it still continues. But like you said, probably a small group 
I mean, Elizondo seemed to be the same. He didn't have a budget. So, you know, he's just grabbing materials and trying to do analysis as he can, kind of like a portfolio, as you've put it, which I feel seems very accurate. So, um, but does, does this seem to be, you know, the organization that Elizondo's been referring to uh, that's kind of evolved? I believe so. I mean, um, you know, I, I think this task force is kind of the outgrowth of what was ATIP. Um, uh, as we know, ATIP officially, you know, hasn't actually existed in almost a decade. I mean, I think it was 2012 that the, the budget for that, the original funding stream ran out. And so um, I don't get the impression that there's been any dedicated funding, at least in that case of, you know, the what was ATIP, which was originally in the Defense Intelligence Agency, but then was moved underneath the undersecretary for intelligence. I, I don't get the sense that there's been any new budget stream for that mission or that portfolio. Um, I think it was one of Elizondo's jobs among a lot of jobs. Um, you know, intelligence officers often have a bunch of things that they're tasked with doing. And, and you know, there's no doubt that this was a mission that he took very seriously and um, to the point where he was very frustrated that nobody else seemed to care about it. Um, and so fast forward to where we are now, I, I think the Navy task force grows out of that in the sense that um, some of the juiciest reports that ATIP had pulled together obviously were originally the Nimitz uh, case in 2004. And then, you know, the, the Roosevelt doesn't come until much later. It comes after ATIP is gone. But it does happen when Elizondo is still in the Pentagon, still spending some of his time on this. And so, um, and I think when the Congress wanted a point of contact in the Pentagon, it sort of logically fell to the Navy because the most uh, um well-known cases involve Navy pilots. And so the Navy, I think in some ways has taken this on just by inertia, but I also think they've been pressured a little bit um, by some members of Congress to show us that you're doing something. You know, we still don't really have answers for what these reports going back a number of years were all about. And so, um, you know, so again, I, I wouldn't look at the Navy task force as some, you know, big, well-financed group of people that are digging into all these reports. Um, I think it's 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 as much a bureaucratic way to answer the mail <laughs> and the public demand as it is a true blue interest in getting to the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, this is a good question. Who would likely be the responsible official? It seems as though the uh, the request from the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee is putting laying this in ONI's lap. But uh, you know, Chris Mellon had suggested it be the defense, the DNI. Um, where do you think that'll end up? Because it does seem like they they are asking for a more coordinated effort of a central you know, repository. Yeah. I, well, I think, um, I think the reference to the office of Naval intelligence is connected to the task force. I think the task force sits in ONI mm -hmm. or, you know, whoever's 
kind of been tasked with overseeing this issue is at the Office of Naval Intelligence. Um, and so that's why they're sort of called out specifically. But to your point, I mean, the, the language is very clear that it asks the Office of the, uh, the Director of National Intelligence and the Secretary of Defense to sort of oversee this or to figure out how to best do this. And so I, I, I'm interested at some point, um, particularly if this bill gets adopted, uh, or this language in the bill gets adopted, um, asking John Radcliffe about this. John Radcliffe is the new director of national intelligence who uh, was just put in there. He's a former member of Congress, a Republican. I mean, I'd be curious to know, was he ever briefed on this when he was in the House? Um, what does he think about it? Uh, because ultimately, he's going to be the guy who either, you know, stalls this or runs with it. Um, so I think that's uh, that's one person who I would, at some point, like to hear more from. Uh, and then the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper. I mean, I, I you know I don't think he's ever been asked about this issue, at least publicly. So I think, um, and that's another benefit of this. No matter what this bill looks like in the end, and no matter what this report, if they actually do do this report, looks like and what the public version looks like. I mean, this is another and a pretty significant way to force the issue. I mean, you now have a real requirement potentially in the law for these agencies to address this. Uh, and which means we in the media can ask them about it. And we're not asking some esoteric question about, do you believe in UFOs? What do you think about this language? What are you going to do about it? How are you going to do it? Um, and so, you know, I think that's exciting in some ways because it, for someone like me who covers Congress, who covers the policy world, um, this is, you know, a huge piece of meat that's just been thrown into the, into the arena on this issue, which has a lot of interest, um, and, you know, is obviously intriguing because anything that's got a big question mark over it. Um, especially when it comes to the intelligence agencies is by definition newsworthy. Mm -hmm. I kind of getting into the background of the growing momentum. It seems as though that uh, this has kind of been a Chris Mellon strategy that you've been aware of longer than most, I think, uh, to, to make exactly what's happened happened in that, you know, he seems to be definitely an apolitical type of person. His main interest is the task at hand. Uh, in this case, to get more visibility and interest uh, and information out about this topic. And it seems like, you know, from this plan from the get-go, you being involved with one of their kind of uh, targets, as opposed uh, meaning they wanted, they put together a package of material uh, with Elizondo uh, initially trying to get this up the ladder to Mattis and others that didn't work. So then it became kind of a media strategy to package together some some sexy videos and some information to entice the media to cover this. They hit it with uh, New York Times, yourself. I think Washington Post came out with a story the same day, uh, which created this fervor, which then uh, made the DOD Navy uh, respond. Um, and then finally, kind of the Navy perhaps accident, uh, well, it seems purposefully opening Pandora's box by admitting that we do take these seriously and we do take these reports, at which point there was kind of this tool now 
for the uh, politicians or even public citizens to uh, request information. Okay, you're looking into UAPs. First of all, uh, well, I think this is a, a pertinent question that hasn't been asked, why you've been lying to the public for all these years. But second of all, what have you got? What have you gotten? And now there seems to be this sense, and Chris Mellon has uh, even tweeted this, that the Senate Intelligence Agency is like, why haven't you told us about this? You're supposed to brief us on these things and you haven't given us any information and now we want information. Um, it does seem like a very savvy kind of uh, plan that was put into place that uh, has been successful. Yeah, I mean, I, first, first off, I don't know that I have any uh, unique insight into Chris Mellon's role. Um, I mean, obviously I've, interviewed Chris a number of times, um, you know, going back to the beginning of this saga in 2017 and the revelations about ATIP. But, you know, it's, it's not rocket science when you have someone like him who's a former Senate Intelligence Committee staffer, a former Pentagon official, who's the most public probably, at least of this sort of establishment class about this issue and hammering on this issue, you know, through op-eds, through interviews on Fox News, um, that, you know, that he's had a big role in, in sort of shepherding this thing through. Um, and he's been pretty clear about that. I mean, he doesn't hide that. Um, right, right. That he, you know, that he thinks this is an important issue and it's not getting enough attention. And, and, and you know, like we said earlier, I mean, he's the one who wrote the op-ed that basically laid out what this report that the committee is now asking for should look like. Um, and so uh, I think, you know, when the history is written about this issue, and obviously we don't know the ending yet, I think Chris Mellon will have played a very instrumental role in this um, because he is the rare, not not completely rare, but, but relatively rare person who has the connections within the intelligence community. He's, you know, uh, taken seriously, has a reputation, um, who's taken on this issue, and he's been able to move the ball, I think, down the field in a way that, that no one has, at least in a very long time. Um, and I give him a lot of credit for that. I mean, he, I think he's genuinely, I got the impression that there was a time over the last couple of years where he was getting pretty frustrated and about to throw in the towel. Like, in other words, there's been some revelations. There's been some discussion at the highest levels about this issue and why it, you know, it should get more attention. But then it sort of, kind of fell off the radar. Um, but I think this this will only embolden him probably this victory of sorts to keep pushing. I don't know if that answers your question, but um, it does. It does definitely. Um, but I'm trying to give also how strong is this momentum? How strong is Marco Rubio's um, intent to get information? And uh, this is just one tool. I would imagine, let's say this doesn't work. They have other tools in the toolbox that they can utilize. Now, there have been other uh, people in Congress who have asked questions and haven't gotten a lot of answers. But uh, of course, they're not coming from the Senate Intelligence Committee. So do you think they, uh, there is momentum that even if this doesn't work, that they're going to keep pursuing this issue? Um, you know, I think that's a good question. You know, how, how deep is this reservoir of interest, um, particularly among 
policymakers who can make a difference, who can force the issue. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure I have a good answer there. I mean, I, I feel like, I mean, number one, we're in the middle of a pandemic, an economic meltdown, lots of other problems that are on the, you know, the agenda. This is not one that a lot of members of Congress are running around thinking about every day. They're just simply not. Um, and it's really, really, really hard to get Congress's attention on anything. And so just prefacing that I think is important. Number two, I don't, I think there is momentum, but I think it's probably among a very select few members of Congress that really care about the issue, who have been briefed about it or have on their own got out of their way to educate themselves and feel like it does need to be addressed. I think they tend to be hawkish members of Congress. And by hawkish, I mean they're focused on national security. They're, they're big supporters of defense budgets. I mean, Marco Rubio is a hawk. Um, I think he comes at this issue with an open mind, clearly, but he's also thinking these are aircraft or spacecraft or something that are potentially threatening to our military. And why are we not more alarmed about it? I think the same goes for Congressman Mark Walsh in the House, who's retiring this year, but you know, he's come up because he wrote a few letters to the Navy. He was demanding more answers. Um, he sits on a ho on the Homeland Security Committee. And, you know, I think he's very animated about it. Um, he's not a committee chairman, so he doesn't really have a whole lot of, uh, you know, a ton of uh, influence uh, in this issue. But, you know, and then some of the other members of the Senate Intelligence Committee, clearly Mark Warner as the vice chairman must have supported this provision that Rubio got into the bill. And so I don't feel like there's some groundswell here. You know, it's sort of like, it's in many ways, it's a rear guard action. It's, it's a very plotting step-by-step, step, two steps forward, one step back, then just standing in place for nine months with nothing happening. And then you take a step forward. Um, you know, I think that that's how a lot of things get done, quite frankly, in Congress. They, you know, unless it's a bill that is responding to something like police reform and needs to be dealt with now, you don't really get momentum on anything unless there's a crisis. And right now there, there's no crisis in UAPs that we know of. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think the, the, the rear guard action has been launched. I think there's no doubt about that. But how many troops are involved? How many members of Congress are going to push for this? And, and not just push to get this bill passed, but ride roughshod over the agencies to actually get a real report done. Because it's one thing to say, give me the report, but they could sit on it. They could delay it. They could, like, like I said earlier, they could deliver some public version of it that's doesn't really tell us much of anything. Um, you know, they could also just write a report saying we went back in our files and like you and I, when we FOIA things, they could say, well, we didn't find anything. Sorry. <laughs> right. um, but again, at least that's something, at least it's forcing them to address the issue. And, and maybe the ultimate answer here is that um, if there are 
reports, even if they're not collected in some centralized way, reports of these UAPs and more recent reports, maybe the next step is to actually put some money towards it. You know, the Congress could step up and say, well, you need dedicated resources to do this. And so yeah, I think we're in the beginning of a very long process that, that could also completely die in the next Congress. Mm-hmm. I mean, a whole new Congress comes in, potentially new committee chairs. Um, the Democrats could take over and Marco Rubio is basically powerless. Um, if they win the Senate. So there's a lot of unknowns here, but um, so yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't count our chickens yet. It is an interesting question because let's say, of course, Trump has made a couple comments around UFOs, but not a lot, not a lot. If Joe Biden becomes president, Podesta may have a role in his presidency and Podesta certainly is very interested in the topic. So maybe he would push something forward. But what about the House? How interested? Do you have any sense at all how the House, their reception to the bill has been? That's interesting. Um, I mean, you know, I don't. I asked Adam Schiff about this issue last summer. I was in an event, um, the uh, Aspen Security Forum. They, they're not doing it this summer, but every summer, the Aspen Institute invites all the muckety mucks from national security circles out to Aspen and they have a couple day conference and Adam Schiff was one of the speakers and I, I was moderating a panel and, and um, I, I, after one of the sessions, I was chatting with him about a bunch of things and I said, Hey, you know, this issue has been bubbling up. Um, and you know, he didn't say much, but he did say that there's no doubt there are members of my committee that are interested in this. You know, I, I have not personally been briefed. He said he had not gotten a briefing about the Navy sightings. Um, and again, this is a year ago. This is July of 2019. Um, but he said that several members had and that he had hoped to or he had planned to. And, you know, he said, I don't know what to make of it. It's kind of interesting. It's it's certainly, you know, something that would fall under our purview. We should look into. Um, and so he didn't dismiss it, but he also didn't give me the impression that he was like, paying much attention to it, quite frankly. Maybe that's changed, but, 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 you know, but he did clearly suggest that there were members on the House Intelligence Committee that, um, that were interested. So the way this will work is the Senate will pass its intelligence authorization bill. And again, this is a massive bill that is, you know, supposed to set policy for all the intelligence agencies on everything you can think of under the sun. It's a mostly classified bill. The House will pass its version and then they'll have to have a conference committee. So the House and the Senate will pick a number of members that will then go in a room and look at the Senate version of the bill and the House version of the bill and basically try to marry it, sort of come up with a common version. And so if there are provisions like this one that are in the Senate bill, but not in the House bill, they have to discuss that. Do we leave it in? Do we take it out? Do we change? They can also change it. Um, not on the conference committee, but they can change it on the floor. So, you know, Senate votes for the Senate intelligence bill, House votes for its own version. They then marry it together. Then they both have to vote on the final bill again. And so there's a bunch of steps here that have to take place. Um, But, you know, if there are members of the House Intelligence Committee that care about this issue, as Adam Schiff mentioned, some of those members could be part of that, potentially part of that conference committee 
that has to come up with a final bill for both houses of Congress to pass. So, you know, I, again, I said earlier, I, I think it'd be very difficult to take this out. Not impossible to take this language out. Um, but, you know, the Senate, the full Senate still has a chance to take it out on its own without even worrying about what the House thinks. Right. I mean, when they debate the bill on the floor, um, they could change it. They could make it a completely classified report. I could see that being a possibility where somebody might say, well, since we don't know exactly what we know, you know, don't we want to make this secret so that we're not revealing any, you know, and the committee sort of references, alludes to that challenge a little bit in the language. If you remember, they make some reference to, we know that this is sensitive stuff mm. potentially, but yet we still want a public report. And so you could see some people raising questions about how public it should be. Because usually in these cases, the report is secret. And then they have a cl an unclassified annex to the report. This is flipped where the report is public. And, oh, you can have a classified annex if you want or if you need it, which is very interesting. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's definitely unusual mm -hmm. the way they've done this. So I guess advocates, uh, the best thing they can do is not just contact Marco Rubio, which uh, Chris Mellon has kind of put out there on Twitter, but also their own representatives in the House and the Senate to let them know they're interested to hopefully influence when they come across it to, to leave it in. Oh, you mean like the public role? Yeah, um, the public. I mean, I think like anything else, I mean, constituents can write their congressperson. I think at this stage, uh, you know, you'd probably want to write to not just members of the intelligence committees, but the, the leadership of the House and Senate. So Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, if you feel strongly about this, they're going to be the, the gatekeepers on what, eventually gets debated by, you know, the full Senate and the full House. Um, but it certainly can't hurt. I mean, if people think this, feel strongly about this issue, it can't hurt to badger your member of Congress about it mm -hmm. or ask them in a town hall or a virtual town hall or whatever they're doing these days. Right. Um, Adam is asking again, uh, do you know that Mellon has any advocates or people he's working with in the House? That I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I know, I mean, I, I mentioned Congressman Mark Walsh of uh, North Carolina. I think he's an ally. I mean, and I say that not because I know specifically, but just because he's been very public about this issue, more public than others. Um, so it's possible that he's working behind the scenes. He told me that he was... Um, Mark Walsh told me a number of months ago that he was um, also enlisting at least the interest of um, his name is escaping me now. Is it Andrew or Anthony Rose? Um, a young congressman from New York State. He's a former military guy. Let me look look him up here. Um, Andy Rose who's apparently a, a military veteran. He's young. He's in his thirties. Um, he apparently cares about this issue. Um, and so, you know, there, there are, uh, there are definitely, you know, yeah. Um, no, Andy Rose. Why am I not? 
find him? Oh, I'm sorry, Max Rose. Max. Um, Max Rose of New York, who is a, uh, I think he's a, just got elected in 2018. Um, yeah, he's 33 from Brooklyn. Uh, he apparently is quite interested in this issue. So I, I just, I, I don't know what he's doing about it, but Walsh had mentioned that he was an ally. And I think they serve on the same subcommittee uh, as part of the Homeland Security Committee. And so I just throw that out there because, like I said earlier, I think there are, you know, let's call them the true believers. And by that, I mean true believers that this is a real issue. It's not um, um, a conspiracy theory. It's not something to be dismissed and laughed at and joked at. It's, it's a real policy issue that we need to figure out what to do about. And so, you know, there are members, but again, you know, has it gotten to the level where, you know, there's huge blocks in the Democratic and Republican Party that are thinking about this? I, I don't think we're close to that yet. So have you been vindicated at all? I mean, about a controversial topic. I'm sure you got some raised eyebrows when you started covering all of this. I was surprised when you started covering it. Uh, with your space symposium that you guys have put together. But um, now that it's gotten <laughs> far, this uh, do you have some of your colleagues coming to you and saying, wow, Bender, I guess you were onto something? Um, a little bit. I mean, I don't, I always got buy-in from my editors at Politico. I mean, I, I never really, I mean, obviously at first when I came to a couple of them and said, you know, I think the Pentagon's, been doing some research on this issue and, you know, they got some money from Congress and there was a little bit of the sort of eye rolling. And I think you and I have talked about this before. Um, but I think once it became clear that this was a real project, it had a real budget, and this is the ATIP program, um, there, there was never any real pushback like, oh, this sounds like a good story. Let's pursue it. Um, um, but yeah, clearly, you know, over the course of the last few years, there's a few comments here and there. Um, uh, but, you know, I've had this discussion. I've been thinking about writing a piece about it. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with the Overton window, <laughs> but um, I only recently came across it. Um, Overton was a, uh, a scholar, professor, fairly recent. He actually died quite young. I think he died in the early 90s. Um, but he came up with this theory, and it became known as the Overton window. But think of a window, which is the space where it's acceptable in academia, policy circles, think tanks, congressional committees, any organization that talks about public policy. There's kind of a window of what you can talk about, what's sort of in the window, what's acceptable. And I think in a number of ways, the Overton window has, has, has shifted in recent years, or it's expanded. And not just on this issue, uh, where the Senate Intelligence Committee chairman can feel like it's okay to put out a public report, you know, not talking about UFOs, not talking about aliens, there's no words like that in there but clearly confronting very head-on an issue of, of, you know, unidentified objects that seem to defy any technology that we know of. Um, the fact that he feels comfortable 
um, shows that that window maybe has of what's acceptable to talk about has expanded or shifted. And I think other examples of it are, you know, all over the place. Um, free college. I think five or 10 years ago, if a presidential candidate talked about free college, they would be laughed off the stage. Like, what are you talking about? We don't do that. That's not acceptable. You know, the, the, the sort of establishment education experts would say, oh, that's, that's crazy. Well, that's not crazy anymore. I mean, Bernie Sanders talked about it. Elizabeth Warren has talked about it. People are proposing actual ways to do it. And so um, I think the Overton window is, is moved on this issue. I think it's a combination of just access to so much information that's out there. I think the younger generation is more open-minded about a lot of things. And that includes younger generation members of Congress. I mean, I, I just mentioned Max Rose. He's 33 years old. He doesn't necessarily have the baggage um, or the scar tissue on an issue like this that maybe, you know, members of Congress from our generation or when we were growing up do. And so, you know, that presents an opportunity where you can talk about things um, that were sort of written off before or, or at least written off in recent memory. I mean, as you know better than I, and I find it fascinating when I read some of the history of, of the UFO issue, there were actually members of Congress that actually cared about this issue even years ago and wrote memos about it. And um, I forget where I saw, I think he was the Speaker of the House, John McCormick, in the 1960s was on the record talking about this issue. Like there was a lot of reports and he said, we should be doing more about this. And of course, as far as we know, nothing really happened. But um, so, you know, I think we're in a new era, but it, it's, it's not completely new. I think mm -hmm. we need to keep in mind that there have been public officials that have, you mentioned John Podesta, um, there have been public officials of note that have been willing to talk about this issue. I just think we're in an era now where more are willing and they don't see it as political suicide, you know, to be the UFO person or the UAP person. But I think John Podesta, I mean, in a Biden administration, if Biden wants a, a national commission to get to the bottom of this, John Podesta would be the perfect person. Mm -hmm. To run it, and no doubt he's worked with him very closely, and he was around during a lot of just uh, Washington UFO hijinks type of stuff that was going on when was some people think he's an alien himself. <laughs> yeah, I think they too. So I have a couple questions from the chat, and one was along the lines of of your last. It's kind of along the lines of what were the Senate briefed on? You know what information they they get. Uh, Steve asked. Do you think that the Senate Intelligence Committee was shown credible evidence to justify including that verbiage in the report, especially if you consider the stigma involved with the UFO UAP topic? It seems they were willing to include it at the risk of public and political scrutiny. Well, sorry, I'm trying to find the... Uh I, you, I, you cut out there for a second. Can you sort of uh, repeat that? Or I, I'm trying to find the actual. Oh, it was different. I can hear you now. Thing, but I'll post it here so you could read it too. It was from Steve. Oh, great. But yeah, do you think that I have another question tool here they can use? Um, so. Um, yeah. I, I mean. I think they were, 
I mean, the short answer is I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I don't know what exactly the Senate Intelligence Committee, you know, learned, what they were briefed. But, you know, I think, try to think of it this way. I mean, if you were a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, or I was, and I was sitting there and a bunch of Navy guys came in, including, it sounds like in one of the briefings at least, one of the pilots who had actually made one of the reports came in and gave you this very detailed, credible sounding report about what we're seeing and why we can't explain it. Um, you might, and, and then you saw the three videos that the Navy put out. I mean, it's just human nature. I mean, they, they might be like, wow, what the hell is that? Like, why do we not know what those are? And so I, you know, I, I'm not ready to assume that they know anything a whole lot more than we do. I mean, uh, as I said earlier, you know, oftentimes, even though they're not supposed to be the last to know, the oversight committees in Congress are the last to know. In other words, especially when you're dealing with intelligence agencies, they don't necessarily, you know, give up the goods on their own unless they need to. Um, and so I, I don't get the impression that the Senate Intel Committee knows anything more than we do. I mean, they probably, they do know more than we do in the sense that they have a clearance and they can see classified documents that we can't get. Maybe they saw the actual uh, reports, which we've been trying to get through FOIA. Like what did the pilots actually see? What did they say? Where are the interview transcripts? Um, I've asked for the more recent reports since last year when the Navy came up with these new guidelines for reporting these. Well, what have they gotten? Have people actually reported them and haven't really gotten anywhere? So, you know, it's possible they could have seen those or some version of that stuff that we in the public haven't seen. Um, but I think there's enough out there in the public that if you're open-minded about this, and open-minded doesn't mean that you believe in aliens. It just means that you believe that there's credible people that are reporting things that we can't explain. Um, there's enough already out there to take the next step, which is, well, what else do we know? Um, should we be doing more? Should we be asking more questions? Should we, you know, be interfacing more with our allies about this issue? Because, you know, that's something that comes up a lot, which is interesting to me, is that hmm. we seem to be behind the ball on this. Like, in other words, a lot of other countries have, gotten over their Overton window is, you know, been opened a long time ago uh, where they talk about this more openly. But what's interesting is I don't get the sense that they have a whole lot more answers than we do. Uh, I mean, you would know more than me, but no, I agree. They cracked the code on this. I don't think they have. I agree. I mean, we have uh, the UK. I mean, we have quite a bit of insight into what they were examining, which is very similar to us. Um, and they didn't really take a stance. The only real government that's taken a stance is Chile, but Chile analyzed cases that they had that right. are similar to ours, similar that you find in Blue Book or similar to the Nimitz situation, where essentially an object is tracked, jets are scrambled, the object flies off, the jets come home, and uh, essentially they've determined that they're not, they don't seem malicious, like they want to hurt us, but that there's something there. So I think you're right about that, personally, at least from what we've seen of what the other governments know. And, and, and I also think that that drives some of the, what I sense, at least from where I sit, is a 
not really a lack of interest in this by the military, but a um, sort of a, a sense of resignation that, you know, is this really worth looking into? I mean, you know, I, if I had a dime for every time somebody told me the Air Force looked at this for 40 years and they found nothing, why would we do that again? Um, which, you know, is sort of a lame answer because, you know, there's always new information. There's always fresh evidence or data um, that you could look at. But, um, but I, I get the sense that there's a resignation that we're never going to figure this out. So, like, why waste our time? And they're not threatening. They don't seem to be. Um, you know, they're not shooting down our aircraft. They're not blowing up our nuclear power plants. Um, and so I think that's a big part of it. You know, I had a conversation. I, I think I've shared this with you. This was not something that I was able to use um, on the record. Um, but uh, I've talked to enough senior people in the Air Force and the Navy to get a pretty good sense that they don't think these aircraft are foreign adversaries. And they don't think that there's some secret U.S. government plane. And, you know, some of these people I've talked to who don't want to go public, they have access to a lot of the deep, dark, black programs. They can go in, they're super users, as they're called. They can go into the systems and have a pretty wide access view of what are the secret programs we've got going on. And I don't get the impression that they think it's one of ours. They don't think it's one of theirs. Um, because I think if they did think it was one of theirs, they would take it more seriously. Right. I mean, if they thought it was Russian or Chinese, I mean, they'd be running around with a chicken out their head. I mean, asking for a trillion more dollars for more hypersonic missiles and more defenses and more. And they're not doing that. And I think it's because they don't know what the hell they are. Mm -hmm. And they don't really have a ton of confidence that they're going to figure it out. And right. maybe some of them don't want to know because it's sort of like, right. I don't want to go there because it will upend potentially everything we're all about. Um, we'll have to go back to basics. Um, yeah, and clean sheet. You've ran across this similar to what you just said. Uh, even, you know, a lot of people think there's some kind of deep, dark, hidden reservoir of, of secrets. Even if that is the case, the majority of the military, and this is my experience from interviews and, and similar to what you're talking about, the majority even of leadership in the military are kind of like, well, there's something out there. We don't know what it is, but we have no ability to, to even figure it out. Nothing I'm going to worry about. But at the same time, they have an attitude that even though that's my attitude about this topic, I don't want to share that with the public. I don't want the public to know I'm taking this seriously and I'm just resigned to the idea that I'm never going to find out. Right. And, and, you know, we've talked about this before too, but I, but I do think, uh, I think it's quite possible that there is information to be known that the government has. And if at all possible, it would be nice for, you know, assuming it doesn't, you know, risk national security, it would be nice for us, the public, to be able to know that. Um, but at the same time, while I think there might be things in there, hidden, I'm not convinced that the people who run these agencies know the stuff is there. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to remember, these agencies are massive. Oftentimes, even within the agencies, they're not, talking to each other, let alone sharing information with another agency. And so, um, 
And then there's the whole question of what records are retained. By law, these agencies are not required to keep a lot of things. They're just not. It's a small percentage that they actually have to keep. So imagine now in the electronic age, as opposed to the paper age, where you just clean off a hard drive because it's, I need more space. Or, you know, uh, as opposed to writing up a report and sending it to some functionary who then sends it to the National Archives or it gets filed away. I feel like we also live in an era where we're, even with all the information we have, our government's not doing a very good job of retaining it. I mean, they're getting better, I think. The National Archives has put out a lot of um, new guidance in recent years about how to maintain electronic archives. But um, I always tell the story about an Army historian who I once talked to who said, this is, goes back five or ten years, but he said, I can tell you where every American soldier was during World War II, virtually every day where they were, within five miles of where they were standing. But if you want me to do a recounting of the Battle of Sadr City in Baghdad in 2004, I can't tell you anything because all the hard drives of those units were wiped out when another unit came in and replaced them. Now, granted, I could go interview the kids who were there who fought the Battle of Sadr City in 2004 and interview them in a way I can't interview World War II people. But I don't have a paper trail the way I do for things that happened a lifetime ago. And so... I just throw that out there because I think there's this misimpression and I sometimes fall trapped to it too, that, that somehow the government just has miles and miles of filing cabinets of stuff they're hiding and, and no doubt they are, but it's not miles and miles. It's like, you know, your living room full <laughs> and, and they're in places that a lot of the senior people don't even know that they're there. They've never read them. They've never looked at them. They, they don't even, they wouldn't even be able to tell you what's in there. Um, and so that's one of the things that's beneficial about this, getting back to the report that the Senate wants, the Senate committee wants, is at least it's a first start and okay, we haven't really had a government-wide investigation of any of this stuff, at least in almost 50 years, right? When did Project Blue Book end? At least that we know of. Um, yeah. But I gotta think the CIA's got stuff. I've gotta think the Air Force has stuff. Even if it's just random, haphazard here, there, everywhere. Um, and it would just be nice to pull all that together and see is there a picture, more common picture, or is it completely blurry and we have no idea? Um, but we don't even know that. Um, but again, I, I, I um, to get back to your question, I'm groaning on, but I think. Um, uh, there are people in the military that um, that really have just looked at this issue and said, there's no winning there. We're not going to figure out the mystery of the universe. And as long as we don't think that they're threatening and, you know, they're about to blow us up, you know, we can focus on a whole lot of other things. And, um, you know, that's kind of disappointing when you think about it. But um, as I've said before, the military is an institution that has a box for everything. You take this and you file it in that box or you follow that directive that you're given by your commander and it lays out in painstaking detail how you do it. And then you throw them something that is a big question mark. We don't know who it belongs to. We don't know how it works. We don't know if it's real or not. You know, is it is it fake? Is it a spoof? Is it, what is it? 
And they, you know, they're head spins. Like, well, what do I do with that? Um, you know, most people in the military are right side of the brain people, not left side of the brain people. And I think it's the left side of the brain people that tend to be more, well, what is this? We should figure this out. And I think some people are just wired, and the military tends to have a lot of these people wired to tell me the answer, tell me where it fits, tell me whose job it is. And that's another thing. It's nobody's job to do this. Not really. I mean, it was ATIP's job, but ATIP was like, this big. Mm-hmm. So this kind of, you know, kind of going down this road a little bit, I've been getting harassed. I know you've been getting harassed by a lot of the, the UFO community, I guess, on Twitter about some of these kind of fringe conspiracies that have been coming out. But, uh, you know, they're attaching... I should know better than to tweet about Roswell. <laughs> but, you know, they're attaching some of the names of people in... Uh, into the stars, including, you know, some of the scientists, but also even Elizondo has gone on Tucker Carlson and said, I think, you know, there's a piece of a UFO material that the, the government has. Do you think, you know, with these guys kind of uh, entertaining these kind of more fringe ideas, could that be jeopard? Could that jeopardize their efforts um, with the Senate or with the, you know, in, in Washington? I mean, I think there is a risk that um, uh, there's certainly a risk that, I mean, just because the Overton window is moved doesn't mean that there still isn't the chance that people could get spooked. You know what I mean? Um, If there's, you know, a feeling, I think, up there that somehow they are roaming into territory where they're going to be vilified or made fun of or there's a political cost to doing this then they could get scared and run away and say i don't want to deal with that anymore and so you know i think um the more i think the more the unproven theories and i i know i'm treading on sort of ice here but like the more the whether they're true or not, the more things like Roswell start getting people to think kooky things, whether that's justified or not, I think probably doesn't help move the ball in Congress. Um, in other words, if you start you know, throwing around a lot of conspiracies and, and interjecting that into the debate, I think it, it probably reduces the chances that something will change. And, you know, I think that's a risk of to the stars Academy. And we've talked about this before. Tom DeLong says some pretty, you know, provocative things, um, which, you know, I, am not in a position to say they're true or they're not true, but, um, they don't always garner the best headlines, um, in terms of like being credible among the people that sit on the Senate intelligence committee who, you know, are presumably going to, you know, try to get more answers and, and at least in theory have the authority to get more answers, whether they'll actually succeed is a whole other issue. But, um, um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a tough balance, I guess. Um, but I have learned my lesson not to tweet about Roswell because the truth is like, I have, you know, I have a 
sort of viewpoints of it that are not really based on real knowledge. I mean, I, I'm not a UFO expert. I'm not a historian. Um, and, you know, I've probably watched way too many History Channel programs. <laughs> but I think, you know, what about for professional journalists to get involved and to, to tackle all of this is that there are research uh, standards. There's a rigor to the work that uh, a journalist does, a professional journalist, journalist in, in approaching this topic. And to me, that's been great because... Uh, the information is more pure. It's more well-researched uh, in a lot of cases, such as yours. And so if you are documenting it, it's something that you've researched and vetted uh, much more carefully than your average UFO. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's true to a point, but like, but in defense of the UFO research community, I mean, I, it, it's, it's in many ways, it is a different universe. Um, it's a different playing field. Um, with different sort of rules, I guess. Um, and I've really tried in, in covering this story to sort of stick to um, what we know in terms of the government paper trail, the money trail. And that's why ATIP was such a good story. It was Congress throwing money effectively to Bob Bigelow to go research this stuff through an earmark, which in most cases would have been, you know, 100% smelly. But because of the topic and the issue, it was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Maybe it's Congress actually forcing the Pentagon to do something that it's not willing to do in a good way. Um, and, and so, you know, I've tried to focus on it from a very sort of government policy. What is the government doing? What is it saying? Trying to figure out what the Navy knows. Um, um, but, you know, quite frankly, the UFO community has done, I think, overall a whole better, better job than I have in actually browbeating the Navy into um, coughing things up, um, which is which is all to the positive. Um, but uh, but I think my approach, by definition, is also going to be criticized by some people in the UFO community. And that's totally understandable, and it's it's totally fine. I mean, I, I'm operating in sort of a narrower field of view consciously than they are. And so I often get accused of covering up for To the Stars Academy or covering up for the government. Or, you know, I'm part of some grand conspiracy to slowly open up the vault, you know, and, and they're – feeding me little things and I'm just a pawn in their big game. And, and, you know, if I am, I totally am not aware of it and I'm an idiot because they've been taking advantage of me for 25 years. Um, um, and so, you know, I think if you just understand that Brian Bender Politico is coming at this issue in a, in a, in many ways, a more narrow way, it's a big question. We don't know the answer, or at least we don't have enough critical mass of, evidence and testimony to say, here's the explanation, irrefutably. But the government's trying to figure it out, at least some elements in the government are trying to figure it out, and they're spending taxpayer dollars to do it. Like, that's worth covering. And like I've said from the beginning, whether you believe these instances are made up, whether you believe they're, you know, some high-tech spoofing job, 
you know, the, the UFO equivalent of driving the cat nuts with the laser pointer. If you believe it's a secret Russian aircraft, you believe it's a secret U.S. government program, or you believe in none of the above, which could be, you know, some craft from another planet, from another dimension. I mean, every single one of those is one of the biggest news stories of the era, no matter what the explanation. Even if it's just fake, they've driven the Navy crazy. Whoever has pulled this off um, has driven them nuts. Um, if it's a secret U.S. government program, and even the most senior people in the intelligence community appear not to know about it, that's a huge story because that's a government within a government. I mean, that's that's that would be proof that there's something going on deep, 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 dark inside our intelligence community or our military that even the people that are supposed to know these things don't know. I mean, that to me is a great story. If it's a breakthrough by the Russians or the Chinese or the Israelis or the French or whoever, you know, we probably want that stuff too. So like, that's a huge story. Um, and so that's how I go about it is like, yeah, I personally don't know what it is, but I feel like whatever it is, it's newsworthy. Yeah. And that do you, are, is there concern you think with yeah. the Senate or do they care at all that the, uh, air force, especially, but all of the agencies have been denying, uh, researchers or people like me who have written about this information for decades and essentially telling us there has been no UFO interest uh, anywhere. They send us the fact sheet that says, nope, we haven't been interested in UFOs since 1969, even if we're coming at them with a document that is from 1980. Um, it, do you think they're concerned at all that, you know, that that denial has been going on for so long, despite that there was really something there were real investigations and they really did actually take it seriously. I think I'm, I'm pretty sure. And I said this before, I mean, um, I'm pretty sure that there's been a number of government agencies. I can't prove this, but the Pentagon, the CIA, the FBI, others who have no doubt since 1969 looked into this issue and have, followed reports and there's got to be some paper trail from that something left over from that um uh i just i don't it's just it's impossible for me to believe that there's nothing there's got to be stuff um where it is who has it who's aware of it is another question i think it's also very convenient for them to just deny these foias on grounds of risking national security or revealing sensitive information. Um, and, you know, the trick there is they will often deny things not, and it's not because the information itself is necessarily all that sensitive. It's this blanket fear that they have, which I think a lot of judges tend to defer to the government on, which is the sources and methods. If we tell you what we know, you could learn how we got it. Did we use a satellite? Did we use some guy with a camera standing across the street? Um, and so that is, is their excuse all the time. It's sort of like, oh, this is a nothing burger. But if we tell you that we have nothing or, you know, we found something that seems immaterial, you might, you bad guy might figure out how we go about gathering this stuff in the first place. And so it's very easy on this issue for them to, you know, if it's something interfering in 
protected airspace, you know, they can just say, yeah, it's secret. We can't, we can't reveal it. We can't um, share it with the public. And so that's what's going to be interesting about where this Senate report goes, because it's very specific. Like they want signals intelligence. Um, and so, you know, anything you gathered through technical means, from satellites, from radars, video, et cetera. Um, you got to throw that in there too. Um, and, you know, that's, that's going to clearly run up against some of these concerns about revealing classified information or revealing sensitive methods. So, you know, it'll be, see, it'll be interesting to see how they respond to that and, and how much of it they really provide. Mm-hmm. Uh, one question was from the chat. Have, have you reached out to the NRO? Um, not recently. I mean, over the years, I've dealt with the NRO. Not um, not specifically on this issue, I don't think, though, and on other issues. And, and maybe I haven't done my due diligence, but um, that's always been a black hole for me. I mean, I, I don't ever remember... I interviewed the head of the NRO once, uh, but that was a very sort of, you know, budget related. Here's the kinds of things that we want to do. And here's why the agency is so critical to the military. And, you know, the NRO, as people don't know, I'm sure they do, is basically builds and operates spy satellites. Um, and it's a very, it's one of the most secret um but, you know, you would think that's a logical place for this report um, to go for information. I mean, if they're looking at the Earth all the time from spy satellites from up in space, presumably they're picking up some of this stuff, too. And so, you know, do they keep that? Do they report on those? Do they put them somewhere? Yep. So and then. There are, uh, there's no more question from the chat. And I think unless there's more come up, this will be the last question. But, you know, the last time we talked was, I guess, a while ago uh, that we did an interview like this. And there's been a big evolution in uh, the DOD's public responses regarding all of this. There's been, it's been somewhat schizophrenic in that. You know, at the beginning, they were essentially denying all of the points that you or the New York Times were making about all this project. Uh, since then, other information has come out. Uh, they've kind of corrected themselves. They've gone, you know, they really denied everything Elizondo said. Now they've kind of backpedaled on some things, but not any others and backpedaled on their backpedals. Um, it's been very strange. And everybody who's interacted with them. Uh, in particular, Tyler Rogaway wrote a very strong article because he works with these guys every day. And he's like, you know, I've never ran across this sort of thing. Um, have you found that strange? And what is your take on, on that? I, I mean, it is strange. Um, some of the things that the Pentagon put out publicly that just didn't ring right, um, and then, as you said, they've, they've backtracked on. I, I don't, I mean, the only theory that I have, and this is, again, not not really having any direct information, but um, just having covered the Pentagon for a long time, I, I feel like one of the major complicating factors in this whole saga 
was that the ATIP program, which the Pentagon did acknowledge existed, they couldn't deny it. I mean, it was there was proof that it existed, um, or at least that the budget item existed, that there was money set aside for this. Um, uh, ended in 2012, and Lou Elizondo left the Pentagon in 2017 saying he was head of the UFO office. And there was no UFO office. And so I think, in retrospect, Elizondo probably um, was a little oversimplistic in describing what his role was. And, and, you know, all of us in the media fell into the trap of Lou Elizondo, the former head of the Pentagon UFO office. Or, you know, that was sort of the layman's way of describing ATIP. But ATIP technically was, had been dead for five years. And so um, I think that, I guess I theorized that that led to a whole series of sort of keystone cop kind of response from the Pentagon, where they went back and said, what did Mr. Elizondo do? Where did he work? And if you look at his actual fitness report, as they would call it, like, you know, his kind of work history in the Pentagon, there's no reference to him being UFO guy on that paperwork. Because he works for the Undersecretary of Intelligence, he was doing interrogation stuff involving Guantanamo detainees. He had, you know, he had other jobs, and so um, if you're just sticking to the facts, you say, well, Miss, you know, Elizondo didn't have that role in in these years, and so it started, I think, to sort of unravel his story, even though his story was basically true. I think it was sort of a little opening there where it sort of fell apart for a while where you have the Pentagon officials saying, well, we don't have evidence that he was doing what he was saying he was, he was doing. Um, I mean, we do know that he was read into ATIP. We've seen the memo from Harry Reid from whenever that was 2009. Um, and, you know, I think when all said and done, his story has held up. Um, what he was doing and why he was doing it has held up. I, I just, I don't really have a good explanation. That's my best explanation is that, again, I, I think there was this miss, this uh, kind of false sense that ATIP was sort of this distinct office for the staff and people worked there and somebody came in every morning and said, hi boss, what are we doing today? And, and it, it belies the way a lot of the intelligence business works. Um, it's a portfolio. It's um, a mission. And so, um, you know, I, I, and, and I think, quite frankly, Elizondo kept on this issue probably with some wink and a nod from some superiors, like, okay, you're going to still be looking into that. That's fine. Just make sure it doesn't, you know, take away from all your other responsibilities. And then I think there were some people who were like, Lou Elizondo's the nut job in the office. He's still obsessed with UFOs. And, and so I, I also think that the Pentagon press office in trying to figure out what the story was, like any place where there's factions, I think they were also getting two different stories. There were probably people who thought Elizondo was too obsessed with this and it was, you know, it's all he talked about and it's all he wanted to do. And then there were probably other people who said, yeah, you know, he sort of had 
permission from his superiors to you know keep pulling this string and to see where it led. So I, I think that could have explained it too, that you know he had friends and enemies on the inside after he was gone and some threw him under the bus and others didn't. And I think in the end though, they came to the conclusion like the rest of us that his story generally is true. He was part of that original ATIP office. I don't think he ran it necessarily. I mean, I guess maybe he was the only guy doing it so that therefore he's running it. Um, and then there was those five years from 2012 to 2017 where he was doing this mission or doing this intelligence gathering job, but there wasn't really any sort of formal thing that existed like, mm-hmm. like it did when it was quote unquote the ATIP office. You make a really good point there. And I think in his <laughs> people to think that it was just him as a hobbyist doing this as a hobby there at the Pentagon. So, but at the same time, you're right. It wasn't this big department though so in his description, he's trying to say, well, no, no, this is tiny. I had other people that I was coordinating with, even if they weren't staffers on this project or something like that. So, yeah, I think you're, it makes sense that a lot would get lost in translation. Right. You know, and if, if you know anything about working in the federal government, I mean, you can you could probably show up to work and, and play crossword puzzles every day for five years. And that's how long it would take for them to remove you, because the process of removing a federal employee is so onerous that, you know, it would you know, you probably could get away with just not doing your job for a long time before it would. And I'm not suggesting that that's what Lou is doing, but um I'm just saying that uh, uh, I think he had a keen interest in this issue and he clearly must have had some buy-in from other people that it was okay to do this mm-hmm. um, with your time or some of your time. But um, I think there's, and maybe some of us in the mainstream media are partially to blame for this perception that there was like this big, you know, secret office that, the Pentagon eventually said, oh, well, Elizondo had nothing to do with that. I mean, it, it, it just wasn't that simple. Mm-hmm. But the results, I mean, for you, this has got to be kind of a, a bit shocking, too, because uh, there's the M- Mellon story, which is pretty impressive that he made this all come about. Um, you know, there's a whole team of the Bigelow lot who were able to make this come about. But the Elizondo story is really interesting, too, in that he left his job to get the word out, uh, and he did. And, uh, you know, he the, the DOD jumped on him, you know, denied everything he had said. Eventually, what he had said came out to be the fact. And now, not only does the world know about it, and it's a big story, now the Senate Intelligence Committee is asking for a report on UAPs, which was essentially his whole task. And we know that the whole department or project he was working on has expanded into this multi-agency sort of group headed up by the ONI. So, I mean, the results of all of this is is kind of staggering, I I feel. Yeah, I mean, um, if you believe, as, as, as I do, that Elizondo... Uh, left the government frustrated that this was an issue that was not getting enough attention and he was going to go public to try and get some attention. And 
ally himself with people like Chris Mellon and Tom DeLong and, and others who were, you know, clearly trying to get traction as well. Um, I think by all accounts, he's been very successful so far. I mean, uh, I think what your definition of success is probably determines, you know, where you sit in this. In other words, like, you know, ultimately success would be the government coughs up everything it knows and we have the answers we want. But, um, but to me, the success has been forcing the issue, getting people to pay attention, not just, you know, more of the public, but policymakers to pay attention. And I think this latest thing is, is probably the clearest, not even probably, I think it's undoubtedly the clearest piece of evidence that their strategy is, is, is succeeding. It's, it's, it's accomplishing one of the main goals that they had, which was to get this on the agenda in a public way that it, you know, hasn't been for a long, long time. And, um, and it'll be interesting. I mean, I, you know, I, I've sort of been covering a lot of other things and I've been sort of keeping tabs on this. And like I said, you know, fi- filing some FOIAs, trying to see what more we could learn. But, um, but you know, for, for us at Politico, I think there's now, you know, a real, there's a real storyline to follow now, again, kind of in a way that there was in 2017 when we found out about ATIP. Um, what is the Senate going to do? What is the House going to do? Does this get in the bill? If it does, what does the president do? And then if it becomes law, the bigger question, what do the actual agencies do? How do they answer the mail on this? Do they? Um, and, you know, and this is, you know, and what's great about the language is, that, you know, it's not just do a report and get back to us. It's like 180 days. There's a timeline. So we in the press can, you know, sort of bird dog it. Say, okay, well, where is that thing? Where is that public report? Mm-hmm. Um, who's writing it? Um, are there agencies, and this, you know, will take some source reporting, but are there agencies that are more resistant, resistant than others as this plays out? You know, why is that? Well, you know, the Air Force gave you this, and it was two pages long, and that's it. The Navy gave you 4,000 pages. The CIA gave you nothing. Well, why? Um, and so, and that's obviously not just my job. It's the job of people in your community, too. I mean, who've... Um, like I said, done a better job, I think, than a lot of the media in, in getting them to cough up even just incremental stuff that, you know, adds another paintbrush stroke to the painting. Um, anyway, right. I hope that's helpful. It is. It's very right. helpful. I love talking to you. So let's see, Adam says, uh, that and, is- the DNI and how they're going to manage all the different players is a great question. And I think that there it will be interesting to see all the different responses, some more helpful than others, no doubt. Um, I wonder if they're going to ask Space Commander. Well, it's interesting. Um, one thing I would keep an eye on uh, is um, I don't think they've scheduled it yet, but the Senate Intelligence Committee every year at least once a year, has this one of their few public hearings. They don't do a lot of public hearings. But uh, it's it's called the Worldwide Threats Hearing. And it's the DNI, I think, 
some of the other heads of intelligence agencies, um, maybe the CIA, the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and, and others, they come for a public session where they sort of do around the world the state of the globe and, and what does the threat environment look like. And that's a hearing that normally is never controversial, but it's become controversial because um, Dan Coates, who was the DNI in the first bunch of years, the first couple of years of the Trump administration, he got in trouble with the boss because he said some things in there that, you know, basically went against what the president was saying about, for example, the strength of ISIS. Trump was saying, we have defeated ISIS. His DNI was saying, well, not so fast. You know, here's why we think there's no threat, et cetera. So since then, the committee hasn't held that hearing. And Republicans control the Senate, so that, you know they're in charge. I think if the Democrats were, were in charge, they would have held it again. Um, but there's been talk just in the last 48 hours about doing that before, doing that hearing again before the August recess. Because, you know, obviously the, the coronavirus pandemic, all of these other things that are going on in terms of this global crisis, the committee wants to hear from the leaders of the intelligence community. And they, they now have a new leader, John Radcliffe, the, the former congressman who I mentioned, who's the DNI. Um, and so I'm going to watch that, not just because it's worthwhile watching in and of itself, but Marco Rubio chairs that committee. So he's chairing that hearing. And it's John Radcliffe that would do this report. So, you know, does he have the, you know, the ball, so to speak, to ask this quite about this in public? I don't know. It'd be something that, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Chris Mellon, you know, his dream is that Marco Rubio in a couple of weeks when they have this hearing brings it up, you know, gets him on the record, Radcliffe on the record, at least pledging to do this and, you know, to do what the committee wants, which gets to the, the last question here, which is like, how does he corral all these other agencies into participating in this? Because, you know, the DNI basically is, you know, oversees seven, I think it's 17 intelligence agencies. Um, so, you know, again, I'm just throwing that out there because you never know, but. Um, no, something to look out for. And that's, what's great. Cause you look, you've been able to capture some really interesting comments here in the, um, conventions or, or other gatherings. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, if nothing else, this keeps this on the agenda. Um, and, you know, keep the George Stephanopoulos's and the Tucker Carlson's and whoever else asking senior people, including the president, who, like I said, I mean, I don't know what to make of what Trump thinks, because the truth is he never says anything. He never says anything. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I saw the reports. Oh, you know, um, when his son asked him, you know, are you going to release all that stuff? He just sort of kind of lapped it off. Um, I don't, you know, I personally don't think he knows much at all. That's my sense. Is if he had a briefing, it was like every other briefing he gets, which if you believe the reports from people who work for him, he doesn't really pay attention. Um, and, you know, you know, unless you're, unless he's really interested in this issue, I don't know, you know, how much data he's really getting. I mean, yeah, he, he certainly could get it if he wanted it. He, a, a purely political animal, really. 
And his probably his first response was that, you know, they told me something about it, but I, I don't think much of it. And I'm letting the Navy look into it was probably his most honest answer. So I, it doesn't seem like he thinks much of yeah. it. The reason he would pick it up is if he found some sort of political uh, reason to do that, that might help his campaign. He's much more into earthbound conspiracy theories. Right. And not that that's necessarily a criticism, of course. I'll, I'll get criticized for saying that, but. um, <laughs> But it's true. So um, I think that is it. Or I guess the last question, where does Mellon go from here? I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, I assume, like I said earlier, this will just embolden him to be to continue to be a public voice on this. Um advocating for more research, more information. Um, and, you know, and he, um, I think he, he walks that line between could this be a national security threat and could this, you know, explain the mystery of the universe? I mean, he, he sort of talks about both. And I think he does it pretty effectively. And he, again, he's got at least the credibility within that, you know, establishment community um where i think at least so far they they take him seriously and um and you know I, i'm pretty sure i don't know this 100 percent, but i'm pretty sure without chris mellon this provision doesn't exist because mm -hmm. um, you know he was he's the one who's really pushed this idea of step one is to just pull together what we know or what we think we know and and what we're doing about this government-wide and um, it's you know it's not inconceivable that that would have happened anyway but um but doubtful i think yeah so season two of unidentified I, one of the things that's coming up the uh, which chris mellon i i know plays a, a bigger role i've heard something about the production i was supposed to actually potentially be interviewed in it but the, they had to cut it short from the pandemic uh and somebody asked are you in it because uh, you were in the first season. I am not in it. Um, I'm not in it. Um, they asked me to be in it um, a while back. And, and basically my position was, um, I think for the first season, which was a lot about the revelations of the office and who Lou was and how this sort of interesting cast of characters came together. Um, you know, that was reporting that I had done. Um and spend quite a bit of time on. So I felt like as a journalist, you know, okay, this is something I'm knowledgeable of. And when I, when they came to me for season two, I was like, well, what am I going to talk about? What do you want me to talk about? I'm not a UFO expert. Um, I mean, I can certainly talk about a little bit of, you know, what I'd like to learn, what more I'd like to do on this subject as a beat reporter who covers the Pentagon. But um, I just didn't feel like, there was a whole lot that I could add. Um, I also, you know, the first season, quite frankly, I, you know, I was as surprised as anybody. I mean, they interviewed me for, you know, two or three hours one day. They came to the Politico newsroom in Washington. And um, I think I was in every episode. So I was like amazed that they were able to slice and dice <laughs> what was effectively one lengthy conversation to make it appear like I was sort of, you know, on the set all the time. I, I wasn't at all, but, um, uh, but, you know, but I, I haven't 
given up on the issue. I mean, I, I certainly want to cover it. And like I said, there's more reason to cover it now, especially for Politico, for our publication, which tries to own Congress and, you know, how screwed up that place is and what they're doing and not doing. And, you know, this is obviously in the mix now, again, in a formal way, which it really wasn't. I mean, the last time that we know of Congress did anything like this was in 2007 or eight when Harry Reid created ATIP. And so now there's like, you know, something potentially on the books that, um, like I said, we can start covering and see where it goes. Mm-hmm. It's an, it's a really, it's a great story. I mean, Mellon's storyline is, is great. Lou's is great. Tom DeLong, this rock star, how did he get in the midst of all this, these intelligence guys and, helping to make this all happen. Uh, it's an incredible story. So it's definitely worth covering. For sure. Well, thank you well, so thanks, much. So thank you for your coverage and breaking all of this great news that you do break uh, and paying attention to all of this from your perspective, which especially now is a is an important one since really the ball's in kind of your wheelhouse in the, in the Senate there. So uh, we'll keep an eye on this. And thank you so much for making the time to talk to me and answer all of these questions. Yeah, I think uh, of course. these um, are really important questions right now. Sounds good. All right. All right. Thanks. We'll be in touch. Have a good one. See ya. Oh, quick question. Is, is there any way, since I haven't been able to scroll through every question that came in while we were talking, is there uh-huh. a way to capture that so I can... Like if I log out, will I lose all that? Because it would be I nice to just read through all the comments. I'll do my best. Um, I'll see. I think there is. Okay. Yeah, I know there is. No Actually, when you log out, you'll be able to come back in and read all of them. So you can read them when you oh, come cool. back in. Sounds good. Now I remember that. All, all right. right. Okay. Thanks. Talk to you later. Thank you. Over and out.